Chapter 11 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 When we came to the level, I desired Nazgig to draw all his men into a circle as near as they could stand. I then asked them who would undertake to carry me, when not a man but proffered his service and desired to have the post of honor, as they called it. I told them my question was only in case of necessity to know whom I might depend upon, for my bearers were provided saving accidents. But, my friends, says I, as you are equally deserving for the offered service as if you were accepted, are any of you desirous of being Philgaze? They all answering together, I, I, I. Nazgig, says I, you and I must come to a capitulation before I go, and your honor must be pledged for performance of articles. I began with telling them what an enemy I was to slavery, and, says I to Nazgig, as I am about to undertake what no man upon earth ever did before, to quit my country, my family, my every conveniency of life, for I know not what, I know not where, and from whence I may never return, I must be indulged, if I am ever so fortunate as to arrive safe in your country, in the satisfaction of seeing all these my fellow travelers as happy as myself, for which reason I must insist upon every man present alighting with me in safety, being made free the moment we touch the ground, and unless you will engage your honor for this, I will not stir a step farther." Nazgig paused for an answer, for though my bearers were his own lasks, and he could dispose of them at pleasure, yet as the rest were the king's, he knew not how far he might venture to promise for them. But being desirous to get me over the rock, fearing I might still retract my purpose, he engaged to procure their freedom of the king, and this, I thought, would make the men more zealous in my service." I then permitted them to take me up, and we were over the rock as quick as thought, and when I had a little experienced the flight, I perceived I had nothing to fear, for they were so dexterous on the Grundy that I received not the least shock all the way, or scarce a wry position, though every quarter of an inch at hand made a considerable deflection from the perpendicular. We shifted but twice till we came to Batringdrig the manner, of which I directed as I sat in my chair, for I ordered the new man to hover over him he was to relieve, and reaching down his hand to meet the others, which were held up with a rope, the old bearer sunk beneath the chair, and the reliever took his course. This we did one by one, till all were changed, but there was one, a stout young fellow, at the first short rope on my right hand, who, observing me to eye him more than the rest, in bravado, would not be relieved before we arrived at Batringdrig Arco, and I afterwards took him into my family. As it was now somewhat advanced into the light season, I had hopes of a tolerable good prospect, but had it been quite light, I should have never been the better for it. I had been upon very high mountains in the inland parts of Africa, but was never too high to see what was below me before, though very much contracted. 
but here, in the highest of our flight, you could not distinguish the globe of the earth, but by a sort of mist, for every way looked alike to me. Then, sometimes, on a cue given from an inexpressible height, my bearers would dart as if it were sloping, like a shooting star, for an incredible distance, almost to the very surface of the sea, still keeping me as upright as a Spaniard on my seat. I asked them the reason of their so vast descent, when I perceived the labor they had afterwards to attain the same height again. They told me they not only eased their grundees by that descent, but could fly half as far again in a day, as by a direct, they meant horizontal, flight. For though it seemed laborious to mount so excessive high, yet they went on at the same time with a great rate. But when they came to descend again, there was no comparison in their speed, and, on my conscience, I believe they spoke true, for in their descents I think no arrow could have reached us. In about sixteen hours, for I took my watch with me, we alighted on the height of Battringdrig, when I thought I had returned to my own Arco. It was so like it, but much larger. Here we rested for hours. I opened my chest and gave each of my bearers a drop of brandy. Nazgig and I also just wetted our mouths and ate a piece of preserve to moisten us, the rest of the lasks sitting down and feeding upon what they had brought with them in their colopets, for their method is, when they take long flights, to carry a number of hard, round fruits, flat like my cream cheeses, but much less, which, containing a sort of flour they eat dry, then drinking, which swells and fills them as much as a good meal of anything else would. Here we met with abundance of delightful pools of water on the vast flat of the rocks. They told me in that arco the young glums and gowries came in vast flights separately to divert themselves on the fine lakes of water, and from thence went sometimes as far as my arco for that purpose, but that was but seldom. When we had sufficiently rested, they shut their colopets, which sometimes hung down from their necks, and were sometimes swung round to their backs, and crossing the Arco and another large sea, but nothing comparable to the first, arrived in about six hours more to the height of the White Mountains, which Nazgig told me were the confines of Georgetti's territories. But, thinks I, it may belong to whom it will for the value of it, for nothing could be more barren than all the top of it was. But the inside of it made amends for that by the prodigious tall and large trees it abounded with, full of the strangest kinds of fruits I had ever seen. And these trees, most of them, seemed to grow out of the very stone itself, not a peck of dirt being to be collected near them. Without side of these mountains, it was scarce darker than at my arco, for I made all the observation my time would allow me, when spying at a vast distance several lights, which were unusual things to me in that country. They told me the largest was the burning mountain Alco. This I remembered to have heard the name of upon some former occasion, though I could not recollect what and that the rest were of the same sort, but smaller. I asked if they were in Georgetti's territories. They said no. 
They belonged to another king formerly, whose subjects were as fond of fire as Georgetes were of avoiding it, and that many of them worked with it always before them, and made an insufferable noise by it. Upon hearing the above relation, an impression struck my fancy that they might be a sort of smiths, or workers in iron, or other metals, and I wished myself with them, for I had a mighty notion of that work, having been frequently at a neighboring forge when a boy, and knew all their tools, and resolved to get all the information I could of that country some other time, for our company drawing to their posts and preparing to set forward again, I could have no more talk now. And you must know, I had observed so many idle rascals before I left England, who could neither strike a stroke nor stir a foot whilst you talked with them, that I feared if I asked questions by the way, they should in answering me neglect their duty and let me drop. When we came near our journey's end, Nazgig asked me where I would please to alight. I told him I thought at my father's, for though I came on a visit to the king, it would not show respect to go before him just off a journey. But I might have spared me the trouble of settling that point, for we were not gone far from the Black Mountain, it going by that name withinside, though it is called the White Without, before we heard the gripsacks and a sort of squeaking or screaming music, very loud. Nazgig told me the king was in flight. I asked him how he knew that, for I could see nobody. He knew it, he said, by the gripsack and the other music, which never played but on that occasion, and presently after I thought the whole kingdom were on the grundee and was going to order my bearers back to the mountain for fear of the concourse. Thinks I, they will jostle me down out of civility, and I shall break my neck to gratify their curiosity." So I told Nazgig, if he did not somehow stop the multitude, I would turn back for the mountain, for I would never venture into that crowd of people. Nazgig sprung away to the king and informed him, but the king, fearing the people should be disgusted at his sending them back, gave orders for the whole body to file off to the right and left, and taking a vast sweep each way to fall in behind me but upon no account to come near me for fear of mischief. This was no sooner said than done, and all spreading into two vast semicircles met in a train just behind my chair. Nazgig had also persuaded the king to retreat back to the palace, telling him it was not with me as with them, who could help themselves in case of accident, but as I was under the guidance of others, and on a foundation he should scarce, in my condition, have ventured upon, he was sure I should be better satisfied with his intended respect only than to receive it there." But, says he, that your majesty may see his contrivance, I will cause him to alight in the palace garden, where you may have the pleasure of viewing him in his machine.
The king returning ordered all the colambs who waited my arrival to assemble in council again, and as I went over the city I was surprised to see all the rock of which it consisted quite covered with people, besides prodigious numbers in the air, all shouting out peals of welcome to me, and as we were then but a little above their heads everyone had something to say of me one wondering what i had got on another swearing he saw hair on my face as long as his arm and in general everyone calling on the image for my safety the king was present when i alighted in the garden and himself taking me from my chair i bent on one knee to kiss his hand but he took me in his arms called me his father and told me he hoped i would make his days equal in glory to his great ancestor begzerbeck we complimented some time before he took me into a small refectory in the garden and gave me some of his sort of wine which i found was loaded with ram's horn and some dried and moist sweetmeats he then told me i had a piece of ceremony to go through after which he hoped to have me to himself i told him Whatever forms of state were customary, they become necessary, and I should obey him. His majesty then called one of the persons in waiting, and telling him he was going to the room of audience, ordered him to conduct me thither forthwith. Following my guide, after a long walk through a sort of piazza, we entered under a stately arch, curiously carved into a very spacious room, lighted with infinite numbers of globe lamps, where he desired me to sit down on a round stone pedestal covered with leaves, and all round the sides were running foliages exquisitely wrought, on the walls were carved figures of glums in several actions, but chiefly in battle, or other warlike exercises, in alto relievo, very bold, with other devices interspersed. I sat down, having first paid my submission to the throne and to the several colams who sat on the king's right and left, down the sides of the room. The person then who introduced me, going into the middle of the room, spoke to this effect. Mighty king, and you honorable lords, his colams, here is present the glum Peter of Grand Volette. I wait your commands where to dispose him. Then the king and all the colams arising, another person stepped forth, and looking at me, for I was standing, Glum Peter of Grand Volette, says he, I am to signify to you that the mighty King Gerageti and all his honorable colams congratulate your arrival in Normsgrut, and have commanded me to give you rank according to your merit. Then the king and colams sat down, and I was led to the king's right hand and placed on the same stone with, but at some small distance from, his majesty. The king then told me the great pleasure I had done him and his colams in my so speedy arrival upon their message, but said he would give me no further trouble now than to know how I chose to be served, and desired me to give orders to a bash he would send to me for whatever I wanted, and then giving orders to a bash to show me my lodgings. I was permitted to retire to refresh myself." 
I was then conducted to my apartment, up a sloping flight of stone, very long, with a vast arch over my head. I believed it might be fifty paces long, at least, but being a very broad, easy ascent and smooth, it was not in the least fatiguing. All the way I went were the same sorts of globe lights as in the audience room. The staircase, if I may call it so, it answering the same purpose, was most beautifully carved, both sides and top. At length I came into a very large gallery, at least fourscore paces long and about twenty broad, on each side of which hung the same globes. At the farther end of this gallery I entered by an arch, very narrow, but most neatly wrought, into an oval room. In the middle of this room, on the right hand, was another small, neat archway, entering through which about ten paces there were two smaller arches to the right and left, and within them, with an easy ascent of about three paces, you came to a flat trough of stone, six or seven feet long, and about the same width. These, I understood, by my bash, were the beds to lie on. I asked him if they were used to lie on the bare stone. He told me some did, but he had orders to lay me on Doffy, and presently came up four fellows with great mats, as I took them for by my globe light, full of something which, by their so easy carrying so great bulk, I perceived was very light. They pitched it down upon my stone bedstead, and first with great sticks, and then with small switches, having beat it soundly, retired. Whilst I was looking at the oddity of the place, I found my bash was gone too. So, says I, all gone. I suppose they intend I shall now go to bed. I then went into my bedchamber, for there were globe lights there too, and observing my bed lay full four feet above the stone, and sloping higher to the sides and head, I went to feel what it was, but laying my hand upon it, it was so soft I could feel no resistance till I had pressed it some way, and it lay so light that a fly must have sunk upon it. Well, thinks I, what if I never lay thus before? I believe I have lain as bad. I then took a turn into my oval room again, and observed the floor, sides, and all was stone, as smooth as possible, but not polished, and the walls and ceiling, and, in short, every place where they could be ornamented, were as well adorned with carvings as can be conceived. Though nobody came near me yet, I did not care to be too inquisitive all at once, for I longed to know what they burnt in the globes, which gave so steady a light, and yet seemed to be enclosed quite round, top and sides, without any vent hole for the smoke to evaporate. Surely, thinks I, they are a dullish glass, for they hung almost above my touch, and must be exceedingly hot with fire so enclosed, and have some small vent hole, though I can't see it. Then, standing on tiptoe to feel, it struck quite cold to my finger, but I could only reach to touch that, or any of the rest, being all of one height. Whilst I was musing thus, I heard the sound of voices coming along the gallery, and presently came a train of servants, with as much victuals as a hundred men could eat, and wines proportionable. 
They set it down at the upper end of the oval room on a flat stone, which, on making the room, had been left in the upper bend of the oval quite across it, about table high, for that purpose. These eatables, such as were liquid or had sauces to them, were served up in a sort of gray stone bowls, but the dry were brought in neat wooden baskets of twig work. The servants all retiring into the gallery except my bash, I asked him if anybody was to eat with me. He told me, no. I wonder, says I, they should send me so much then. He replied it was the allowance of my apartment by His Majesty's orders, which silenced me. I believe there were twenty different things on the table, insomuch that I did not know where to begin, and heartily wished for an excuse to get rid of my bash, who stood close at my elbow, but that I might have smelt and tasted before I helped myself to anything, for I knew not what any one thing was. In this perplexity I asked my bash what post he was in under His Majesty. He said, one of the fifty bashes appointed to be near the king's favorites went at court. And pray, said I, are you the person to attend me? He was, he said, the principal to wait upon my person, but there were at least sixty others who had different offices in this apartment. I would be glad, said I, to know your name, that I may the more readily speak to you. He told me his name was Quilly. Then, pray, Quilly, says I, do you know what is become of my baggage and chair? I found, though he guessed at my baggage, he was puzzled at the name of chair. My seat, says I. Oh, I understand you, says he. Then, pray, will you go bring me word of them and see them brought safe up into my gallery? He tripped away on my errand. So thinks I, now I am fairly rid of you, but I had scarce turned any of my viands over before I found he had but stepped into the gallery to send some of the idle fellows in waiting there, and this putting me to a nonplus. Quilly, says I, you know I am a stranger here, and as different countries have different ways and customs, as well as dressing their eatables as other things, and these dishes being dressed contrary to my custom, I shall be glad if you will name some of them to me, that I may know them when I see them again. Quilly began with this and ran on to that, which was a fine dish, and the other few but the king have at their tables. And here, says he, is a dish of padsy, and there, hold, hold, says I, Quilly, let's try these first before you proceed, for I remembered at my grotto they all eat my fish for padsy, and I cut a slice of it, for I always carried my clasp knife in my pocket, and they had no such thing there, and laying it on a round cake I took for my trencher, I tasted it, and found it so to my apprehension in the palate, but it did not look or flake like fish, as I observed by the slices they had cut it into, for all the victuals were in long slices, ready to bite at. I asked him if these things were not all cut, and with what, for I understood they had no knives, showing him mine. He said the cook cut it with a sharp stone. I then asked him the name of several other things, 
and at last he came to Cromont, which, having heard of before, I now tasted, and could have sworn it had been a hashed fowl. I asked him if Cromots were very common. He told me, yes, towards the bottoms of the mountains there were abundance of Cromot trees. No, no, says I, not trees, I mean fowls, birds. I don't know what they are, said he, but these Cromots grow on very large trees. Indeed, I did not know yet what I was at. But, says I, if your fowls do, sure your fish don't grow on trees too. We have none of them, says he, in this country. Why, says I, it is but this moment I tasted one. I don't know, said he, where the cook got it. Why, here, says I, what you call padsy, I call fish. I, padsy, says he, grows upon a bush in the same woods. Well done, says I, this is the first country I was ever in where the fish and fowl grew on trees. It is ten to one, but I meet with an ox growing on some tree by the tail before I leave you. I had by this time, out of these two and some other pickings, made up a very good meal, and putting my knife into my pocket, desired something to drink. My bash asked me what I pleased to have. I told him anything to take a good draught of. Then he filled me a bot of wine, very well tasted, though too sweet for meals, but putting some water to it, it did very well. My messengers being returned, and having set all my things in the gallery, I desired Quilly to let the victuals be taken away, upon which there came more servants than dishes, who took all at once, but some wine and water I desired might remain. I told Quilly I saw there were two beds. Who are they for? says I. One for you and one for me, says he, for we bashes never leave the king's favorites. Pray, Quilly, says I, what is the meaning that to several rooms I have been in there is never a door? Door, says he, I don't know that. What, says I, don't you shut your rooms at night? No, no, shut at night? I never heard of that. I believe, says I, Quilly, it is almost bedtime, is it not? No, no, says Quilly, the gripsack has not sounded. How do you know, says I, in this country, when you shall lie down, and when rise, for my wife has told me you have no clocks. No, no clocks, says he. Then, says I, does every one rise and lie down when they please, or do you all lie down and rise together about the same time? Oh, says Quilly, you will hear the gripsack presently. There are several glums who take it by turns to sound it for the rest, and then we know it is time to lie down, and when they sound it again, we know it is time to rise. And afterwards, I found these people guessed the time, being twelve hours between sound and sound, so well that there were but few minutes' variation at any time between them and my watch, and I set my watch to go from their soundings at six o'clock. 
I found myself pretty much fatigued after my journey, for though I had only to sit still, yet the excessive velocity of such an unusual motion strained every muscle as much as the hardest labor, for you may imagine I could not at first be without my fears upon ever so small a variation of my chair, which, though I could not possibly by my own inclination one way or other rectify, yet a natural propensity to a perpendicular station involuntarily biases one to incline this or that way in order to preserve it, and then at first my breath, being ready to fail me in proportion to the celerity of the flight and to my own apprehensions, and being upon that exercise nearly thirty hours and without sleep for almost forty, you may judge I wanted rest. So I told Quilly I would lie down and ordered him not to disturb me till I waked of myself. I could not prevent the officiousness of my valet to put me to bed and cover me with the down or whatever it was, for having no sheets, I pulled off nothing but my coat, wig, and shoes, and putting on my flannel nightcap, I laid me down. End of Chapter 11